I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack on today, uh, which is Holocaust Memorial Day, which means that Alina is in charge. Alina, who have you got with us? Today we've got Michael Frank, who's an author, and we're going to be talking with him about his new book, 100 Saturdays. We're not going to be talking in between this, so we're going to jump in straight for the class question. But before we do, I just want to say welcome to Michael to our podcast. So we're going to be talking about Stella Levy, and I want to know how you got to know Stella, what inspired you to write her story? Well, thank you so much for having me on, and I'm delighted to answer this question, and I'm sure a few that will follow Stella Levy, who was born in 1923, she'll be 100 years this May, is the woman who inspired, catalyzed, and is at the very center of this book, 100 Saturdays, Stella Levy and the Search for a Lost World. I met Stella going eight years back now, uh, nearly, when I went to attend a lecture about the nature of making implementing, designing, understanding memorials specifically to the Shoah, to the Holocaust at Casa Italiana, which is the uh, Department of Italian Studies at New York University, right across the street from where I live as it happens. And I hurried in late to this lecture, sat down in the only open chair at a conference table. This was in the library upstairs. And she and I struck up a conversation. Within minutes, she was almost provocatively talking to me about her experience in the camp, something that ironically, as I got to know her more, she was much more uh, hesitant to do in general than she was for whatever reason that evening. Maybe it was the subject. Maybe it was the weather. Maybe it was her mood. I, I can't tell you. But we continued our conversation. It turned out we knew somebody in common the following Saturday at her house, also in Greenwich Village. And then the Saturday after that, and the one after that, I think of her, I've come to think of her as a modern day Scheherazade, who started to tell me the story of her life, most certainly the long uh, experience of her childhood and youth growing up on the island of Rhodes in the neighborhood known as the Judidia, where approximately 2,000 people lived around the time of her birth, Sephardic Jews who had come there almost half a millennium earlier after the expulsion from Spain. She talked to me about the world she was uh, born into and that formed her. And then, of course, she led me to the chapters. Then, then of course, she led me to the Holocaust, the deportation, and the journey to Auschwitz in July and forward of 1944, 
But the centerpiece of the book, the beginning of the book, the energy that set the book and the experience in motion was very much the world that she grew up in. And I should add one other thing, which is that I had no idea I was writing such a book. I simply went to listen to Stella. It took me a year before I even thought, oh, maybe there's a book here. So we are going to talk all about Stella and her experiences. But before we do, I have to say, because we're all nerdy historians on this program and we have lots of nerdy historians listening as well, using memories as history. Uh, I'm going to quote Paul Fussell, who we get bludgeoned with in First World Warland, who said that all memoirs of conflict are fiction in a way and that the fiction of the hero is that the hero of the piece must be held up to a higher ideal than the reader is capable of. And that colours how you write this, how they write their memoirs that we then use to write history. Obviously, you're aware of this. How did you deal with that? Of course, I'm aware of it. And it was one of the central concerns of, of the book and of my hesitation almost in writing the book, because it's one thing to fall under the spell of a magnetic storyteller. It's another to find out whether those stories are actually true. And I went about this in a couple of ways. I, I re-asked Stella many questions, and I think that that was helpful. The story would shift. It had many moving parts at times. She was very open about saying what she didn't know and what she learned later from reading about what happened to her and her community. Uh, she very much became a student of herself and her own life experience, especially after she retired from working in her 80s, her 90s. She attends many lectures like the one where we met. She has uh, friends who are uh, experts in the field. And so I realized once I learned that, that also her memories are to some degree probably colored by what she's absorbed and learned in, in the subsequent years in this sort of deliberate way that she's gone about it, but also simply by living her life. And we all know how unreliable memory is, how it shifts and shapes changes. And when I could, and there were many occasions when I could, I would take a story of Stella's and see where it coincided with other accounts, whether uh, memoir or accounts by historians. And I would open a parenthesis to say here that, you know, I read a, just about everything I could put my hands on about Rhodes and that period. Even the historians give different interpretations to certain key moments. Uh, but the surprising thing for me was really astonishing was how much Stella's memory, how much her recollections coincided with other people's recollections and memories. Now, again, was this because she'd read these sources herself? Possibly. But one thing I discovered about this woman is that she has a remarkably sharp sense of what happened in the past. I'll give you an example, though, of where there was a discrepancy. Uh, she has a memory uh, of the time after the Germans had seized the island from the Italians. So after the fall of 1943, when she conflated two parties that were uh, likely took place in the same garden of her, the friend of hers named Stella Sidis. And to me, this was just such a fascinating minor key mistake that she blended together the two parties. How did I know this? This is a lesser known fact, I think, of, of the warriors, or at least to me as an amateur. And I do want to stress that I'm a very much a self-taught uh, historian. I'm not a historian, which is another way of saying that. I'm self-taught, self-informed. And I was directed to a document, a report made by one of the many spies on the island. And this is what, for me, was I consider the lesser known piece of information about the climate 
the historical moment then, which was that the Italians who had seized the island as the Ottoman Empire was disintegrating uh, in 1912 in, in an Italo-Turkish war and had made it an official colony in 1923, the year as it happens that Stella was born, had in place this enormous apparatus of observation and spying and record keeping and tragically, and for the case of these Jews, list making among their spying uh, apparatus were the fact that they kept track of these young Jewish women, particularly, I think, young Jewish women like Stella, who befriended Italian soldiers, who were, of course, in the end, their enemies, the enemies of the of the germ of the German government. There was this striking letter, a report from a spy giving his, we assume his, but it could be hers, who knows, her account of this birthday party that Stella remembered attending at her friend Stella Sidis's house. And it was so visceral to me, let's just say, as an aside, to read the account of this party, the sesame crackers they ate, the vermouth they drank, the gramophone they listened to, excuse me, the radio they listened to because radios were forbidden and the radio was very clearly identified as belonging to an Italian, not an Italian soldier, not a Jewish citizen of Rhodes. And uh, I was—I read, I read that letter with absolute chills. This very idea that these young Jewish women were celebrating an innocent birthday party, drinking vermouth, eating sesame crackers, dancing to Italian music, and that their movements were being recorded. Why? That aside... It pointed to this one discrepancy in, in Stella's memory, but it to me is such essentially a minor one because she meant to many parties at that house, the people were the same, the ambiance was the same. In sum, this is my way of saying, I think Stella is a fairly accurate narrator. I acknowledge that I am telling a story seen over the shoulder of a woman of a century of age, looking back at, at her 20s, uh, her teens and 20s. It's bound to be somewhat reshaped by time, reformed, but I I take the essence of what she means to be as true to the story of her life, it's still conditional, as it could be. I need to say that I really did love this book. I love the way you wrote it. I loved how honest you were, how you know you showed that especially you show this comparison in your book between the two, the two parties that she may have made a mistake. You've used historians where you show that this historian argues this, this historian argues that. You're very, very open about these things. And I it's amazing. I highly Thank recommend you. people go and grab this copy of this book because I, I I binged it, by the way, just so everybody knows. I binged it in literally uh, five, six hours, and I just, just it's so easy to read, and I, and I loved it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's move on to Stella's story because, like you mentioned earlier, and, and for the people that pick up, hopefully pick up the book and read it, you don't just tell the story of the Holocaust. You don't just tell the story of her being in Auschwitz. You tell more of a story of what life was like way before that, what family life was like, and you go into such detail and it's absolutely amazing. So could you tell us a little bit about Stella's family and her life before the war began? With pleasure. So I knew very little about, translate almost nothing, about the Jewish community of the island of Rhodes. And so for me, it was a kind of anthropological expedition into past time and across geography. And again, here we return to the quality of Stella's storytelling, so detailed, so tactile. Uh, I could smell, almost touch, hear, and sense what it was like to grow up on this island, which she referred to 
as her, their own little piece of the earth. I put myself in her place and tried to imagine what it felt like to belong to a community that belonged to an island that transcended the government in place to a certain degree. She knew that ancestrally, her people had lived under the Ottomans. The Italians came and took the government over in officially in 1923. The Germans came and took the island in 1943. After she left, it would become Greek, of course. But daily life was, of course, naturally informed by the fact that there was a fascist government in place. But at the same time, the traditions, superstitions, the cuisine, the clothes, the proverbs, the houses remained constant, remained not only constant, but attached to this inherited tradition that had come down through the great-grandparents to Stella's grandmothers, whom she knew, to her parents and to her. Growing up in that community, I think she might have times felt that it was a bit claustrophobic, it was closed, it was hidebound, but it was also an island, let's not forget, that looked outward to the rest of the world. So there was always this tension between the world of tradition and the wider world beyond the sea, the world of the past and the world of possibility, which paradoxically was introduced when the Italians came, when notions of furthering her education. At 14, she tells this wonderful story. She got up one morning and packed a suitcase and put it at the foot of her bed and told her mother that she was planning on going to university in Italy. This is not an idea that would have dawned on anyone before the Italians came and took over the island. No one from her community, except for one woman had gone to study at the Sorbonne, had left the island for higher education certainly no young woman. The, the destiny of a young woman was at 15 or 16 to start embroidering her trousseau, waiting for the man she was going to be married to whom she would never choose. So Stella, she lives in this tension and at this point of transition, and I think with uh, it retrospectively has come to value, as I did listening to her, the incredible traditions that she grew up with. I think specifically, I want to ask you, is there a difference for her? So she was born after occupation. So Stella yes. knows the Italian occupation. Do things change for her at all under Mussolini? Stella knew no other government, of course. When she was born, the island was officially made Italian. But through hearsay and through inheritance from her parents and grandparents, she knew, for example, that in her neighborhood, there had been no running water and that the water was drawn from wells. The Italians came and introduced running water. There were still no showers or baths in any of almost any of the houses in the Juderia, for example. She knew that before the Italians came, the schools were, the language of the schooling for the young children of the Juderia was French because these schools were established and administered by the Alliance Universelle Israelite. When the Italians came, it switched to Italian. So you had in one family, Stella's older siblings went to school in French, whereas Stella and her next older sibling, she was one of seven, three of them went to school in Italian. So there's this inherited past that was very proximate at all times. And then there was the present. In the early years of child, Stella's childhood, I think her awareness of the government and the politics that were developing around her was fairly minimal. But she did have an older sister called Felici, who was the intellectual of the family, 
who used to sit up late at night and have heated conversations with her friend Robert Cohen, for example. And often these touched on the strictures of the government under which they were living. And then, of course, as Stella became more conscious, she became more aware of the fact that, for example, when it was parade day, whatever holiday that was, she and her classmates had to line up in the form in the formation of the, the words ducks and wrecks for it as an to honor the governor and not to in honor of the government, the governor and of Mussolini. And of course, as time unfolded even more, and we come to the late 30s. With the promulgation of the racial laws in 1938, Stella became personally and deeply painfully aware of the power of the fascist government to change and, in fact, restrict her life. The Germans, well, they, they occupy the island. We've mentioned this already, but I'm just going to reiterate it. So the Germans occupy the island in September 1943. I want to ask the question, was the occupation any better? I mean, we logically know it wasn't any better, but I still want you to tell us about what the difference was uh, and how did it get worse? Well, I think we have to wind back a tiny bit the, the, to 38, because 1938 is really the formative year for Stella as a young woman. She's on the verge of going to high school. High school is going to be the gateway to that university education she so longs to have. She's following her sister Felicie, again, the intellectual of the family, to the school. Felicie has long since graduated. She is looking forward to this day with great anticipation. And in that fall, the fall of 43, boom, the racial laws are uh, promulgated. She is kicked out of school completely. Her father has to take an Italian partner in, at his business, which begins to decline. The Jews of the island are forbidden from attending the cinema, the theater, the opera, for from going to the social club. Uh, they can only see Jewish doctors for a time. They're forbidden from going to the beach. Let's not forget that Stella is growing up as a beach bum. Okay, the 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 the, the beach is just down the road from her house. The whole family moves into a cabina, a little structure that they shared with another family, festively painted by Greek artists with flowers and vines, uh, and that too is taken away around thirty eight. So her life undergoes this major upheaval. Now, she finds a way around the education, which is one of Stella's uh, characteristic, gritty and imaginative gestures in her life. She goes, she forms with the help of uh, several Italian professors from the Scuola Maschile, so the boys' version of the high school that she would have attended, this shadow school in the evenings in which they study all of their subjects, she and a handful of only boys, it's interesting, from the Judidia, are continue to be educated privately and illegally. But officially, she is kicked out of school. She calls it the absolute worst experience of her young life, uh, saying to me that it, that she felt that they'd been treated like animals, is her quote. You know, animals don't need to be educated. Now, the funny thing is, though, we are in the remote eastern Mediterranean, far from mainland in Italy, and the racial laws, though in place, are not always so strictly implemented. In time, they return to the beach. In time, they can go to the movies, but they can never go back to school. So the major upheaval for Stella is in 38. In 43, when the Germans seize the island from the Italians that fall, they are definitely afraid. The degree to which they're informed of what's going on in Europe is up for long conversation, discussion. I approached this subject many, many times with Stella, who insists to this day 
that they thought that what was happening to the Jews of Europe was happening to those other Ashkenazi Jews. They could not conceive of anything like that ever happening to the to them, these Sephardic Jews on the island of Rhodes, virtually in Turkey. They also lived under a news embargo. The press was censured. The radio was censored. Of course, they were. it was illegal to have a radio in the first place, although they listened to one in secret. The newspapers were fascist uh, propaganda machines with increasingly punishing and offensive anti-Semitic language. The Italians were pretty bad in their messaging. And then come the Germans. They know them to be obviously part of a machine that is also anti-Semitic, but they're so busy when they first seize the island, trying to figure out how to run it, trying to figure out what to do with these Italian soldiers who oppose them. So many of them, they were outnumbered. They outnumbered the Germans on the island. They had to be sent off to prisoner of war camps. They had to be observed and surveyed and controlled themselves. That for a time, interestingly, they really didn't pay much attention to the Jews of Rhodes. The initial fear passed. The island continued to function. People still, when they had jobs, went to work. Food was scarce, Stella traded on the black market. But they were never ghettoized. They were never locked up. They were never forced to wear Jewish stars. None of the tropes that we associate uh, with the what happened to the Jews of Europe happened to the Jews in Rhodes, which, of course, made it all the more striking and shocking and surprising when the order came from Athens in July of 1944 that these Jews, too, should be rounded up and sent to the camps. This is the definitive moment, isn't it? July 44, as you say, the Jews on the island are deported and from the mainland, arrival on the mainland, they're sent to Auschwitz. So can you talk us through the journey, Stella's journey from the island to Auschwitz? So rewinding just a tiny bit earlier to April of 44, the British began bombing roads, bombing that is hoping to bomb, let's clarify, the German supply ships uh, docked in the port in the harbor, which was near to the Judea, and therefore they also by accident bombed some streets and one synagogue in the Judea. In fact, on Passover, as people were leaving the synagogue, I think around 20 of them were killed. This made life untenable in the neighborhood where these people have been living, as I said before, for almost five millennia at this point, and everyone left. And they moved to the Greek villages up in the hills, farther away from the historic center, the walled city, the levees among them. Overnight, they left the parents and Rene and Stella, who are the two remaining children. Everyone else has left the island for reasons of marriage or work or opportunity. They move into a small village of Trianda. Stella and Rene return only once to their house to collect more summer clothes, not very useful for where they're eventually headed. And uh, this is April and May, June. And in July, the order comes. First, the men are arrested and they're taken to the Aeronautica, which is the, the seat of, let's call it, the Italian Air Force. Stella's father, by this point, is going blind from uh, glaucoma associated with diabetes. Stella decides to go in his place. She takes his identity card and says, my father is too unwell. You can take me to whatever it is you, wherever it is you intend to take us. 
the thinking among the Jews in the community per Stella and other people I've read was, well, they're going to resettle us. They're going to take us to another island. They're going to take us to a work camp. Of course, they were not interested in Stella. They told her to go home and told her to send her father. The men were kept for one night, I think. And the next day, the order came that the women were to come with their clothes, with food and water for a couple of days or a week, actually. How did they know who they were arresting is, of course, a major question. I said earlier that the Italians had been surveying the community. They'd also been keeping these meticulous records, among them lists of the Jewish citizens, which this Professor Marco Clemente has pro has proven, I, I feel quite definitively, were handed over to the Germans in this period, this summer of 44. So they were able to round up all 1,700 or so, the figure jumps around a bit, of the Jews of the island, missing only one nearly 100-year-old woman who hadn't heard the order and died shortly after the deportation. The 1,700 human beings are on a Sunday morning after an air raid siren has been sounded, though there was no bombing that day, but simply to keep everyone else in the community, everyone else on the island indoors. They are uh, marched down to the port. It took most of the day. They're loaded onto three rather decrepit boats with supervision, but it's not as though they were surrounded by tons of soldiers or, 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 or policemen. They went, they got on the boats, they traveled to Piraeus, they were put in uh, a prison at Haidari, and then they were put on the train for Auschwitz. In all, it was the longest journey, I think that's fairly definitive now, measured by either distance or time, three weeks in all, door to door. They arrive at Auschwitz and face a selection, and 90% of them are immediately murdered, among them Stella's parents, her uncle, her cousin with her young baby, Stella, her sister Renee, her cousin Sara Notrika, and other young women from the community form a bond that helps them get through the next nine months of their lives. So you've mentioned this arrival in Auschwitz. It takes what, 13 days in those freight cars. It was one of the most horrific experiences, especially from those regions of Europe, to get to Auschwitz because constantly you've got the war effort happening at the same time and the war effort trains take priority. So these trains are constantly stopping and starting everywhere. So it takes such an extremely long time to be able to get to Auschwitz. But she arrives, and I want you to talk us through, because this experience for every single person that arrives to Auschwitz is incredibly memorable. So could you just talk us through this moment of her actual arrival, how she feels, what happens? You've already mentioned her, her parents, obviously. They get sent to the gas chambers, and she survives with her sister and her cousins. But you, there's a bit more detail in your book, and I want to just pull this out of you just a little bit more. Sure, sure. Well, I should say also, I mean, and this is a little bit of a meta comment maybe, but it took a long time for Stella to tell me the, these stories. She was very hesitant to talk about her time in the camps. At the same time, I think she did want to talk about them, but it was a negotiation of trust, time, and patience. You know, this was a six-year relationship, six years of conversation that uh, evolved as Stella and I did. We became friends and she needed to feel that she could, I think, trust me to honor first her wish that we amply present 
life in the Judea before the deportation, but also that I'd be patient with her as she searched her way through assembling a fairly coherent uh account of what happened when she arrived in Auschwitz. So these were not easy conversations. They took a long time to unfold. They took a long time to return to. Unfortunately, I had to go back and ask her to clarify things. Again, here I would look at what historical material I could find, but also I, the stories were offered in a very fragmentary way at first. Some of them were so fantastical as they often are uh, with regard to what happens in the camps that I wanted to be really sure I was understanding Stella. I should mention that all of our conversations are conducted in Italian. Her mother tongue is Judeo-Spanish, which is the official name given to the form of Ladino that is spoken on roads, was spoken on roads in the community. But she was educated in Italian and it's the language of which now I think she's most comfortable. Stella, one of the first things Stella said to me and kept returning to was that within days, these young, healthy women in their summer clothes, July of 1944, you're coming from the Mediterranean. She knows perfectly well that she was wearing a white dress with green polka dots and cork-lying sandals. They were swimmers. They were hikers. They lived on Mediterranean diet. They were healthy, robust people. Within a week, she said to me, they turned into something other. They were people who were fighting for food, cheating, conniving, starving, calculating, forming strong bonds among themselves to help each other, but suspicious at first of other people they met. She said to me, the only way I could survive, and this was not voluntary, let's just say, but the way she survived was to separate from the Stella of Rhodes. Now there was a different Stella. A different Stella came into being within the arc of a single week in Auschwitz. And that Stella, that other Stella, remained in action and kept Stella, the bigger, intact Stella, alive for the next nine months of her life. Michael, I find that really interesting, actually, because you you underline that in your book a few quite a few times, actually, that mm. she doesn't see herself as the Stella that was in Auschwitz, but a different Stella. She lived, this was someone else living this experience. And it's really interesting to look at the psychology because this is also what you include. You include not just her story and what she says and her emotions and her feelings. You talk about her psychological state. And that's really how you kind of, you open the book with this a little bit about her declaring to you that she needs to go and see a psychologist. And I find this just, I just find it really interesting. Well, I mean, it's unmistakable that, although I have absolutely no training, obviously, as a as a psychologist or a psychotherapist, I am a, a, a probably a pretty good listener. And insofar as listening to someone assemble the pieces of her life is curative or helpful, Stella certainly did that with me. I do sometimes wonder whether that formulation about the other Stella was one that she was aware of in the moment, or it is a way of her coming to terms with some of the things she had to do in order to survive from a later point in life. Because I, I put myself in her place and try to imagine how different one would have to be so quickly in order to survive, and how once you pull away from that experience later on, you might struggle to integrate that with the sense of who you were before this very generally quite 
well, decidedly moral, well-behaved, honest, a little black marketeering is not really a blemish on one's record during war times, let's say, a hardworking, uh, hard-studying, serious, fun-loving, also athletic woman can be husbanding crusts of bread, trading them, collecting them and trading them, can be clinging to her known people in order to make sure that she eats that her spoon isn't stolen from her at night, which she ties, sleeps with under her pillow, then ties to her leg as the day unfolds, whose bodily functions are now performed in public instead of in private, whose body changes dramatically, the, the weight, of course, dropping off of her, her menstruation stopping, her hair shorn from her. When it grows back, it's full of lice. I mean, it, it goes on and on. It's filthy. It's cold. It's, it's hot during the day and cold at night. It's miserable, of course. It's a miserable place to find oneself. So naturally, a shift in one's consciousness seems like a very credible way to deal, both in the moment and retrospectively. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's another complication as well. You've already alluded to it by talking about the rather esoteric, compared to like English or French or Spanish language, that Stella and some of the islanders speak. So communication, the Rhodes Jews have huge problems with this, don't they? They do, and and but quite luckily for them, early on, one of the barracks leaders understands this, probably also rather selfishly looking after her job, which is to keep these women functioning in an order, and knowing that if they can't understand the commands, the, the rules, and the directions they're being given, they're not going to be very good inmates. And when she discovers, and this was the first story Stella told me when we sat down next to each other that day at Casa Italiana in 2015, when they discovered, when this woman discovered that Stella and her companions from Rhodes spoke French, she put them in the barracks with French and Belgian women who, being Ashkenazi and speaking Yiddish and also understanding enough German, could follow the rules, follow the orders, and would translate for Stella and the other young women. So it's a really remarkable legacy from the Alliance that the French that was taught into the community, which Stella learned first because she was jealous of her older sisters having a private language between the two of them, therefore learned some French to understand the sisters, then went to school in Italian, but her foreign language was French then, and she continued it as she moved through middle school, the equivalent middle school. This ended up, as she told me that night, 
saving her life. It's really a remarkable thing that one doesn't think about. They arrived there and they were considered alien. They didn't understand Jews who didn't speak Yiddish, right? Who were these Judeo-Spanish-speaking Italian Jews from the island of Rhodes? They didn't fit into any obvious category in the camps. There are, of course, the Jews from Salonika, but they were another category, another another, another period, and, and, and not there when Stella was there. But this is what she and her companions faced. So Stella spends about two and a half months in Auschwitz, and then she gets sent to Landsberg. Can you tell us a little bit more about her experience in Landsberg? Well, the first thing to say about the end of Auschwitz, the two months there, is that when they are leaving the camp, a guard turns to Madame Katz, who is one of the French women who become friends with Stella and her group, and says, you may allow yourself to hope now. Because once they left Auschwitz, they were not, it seemed, in to them anyway, and also to this guard, in direct danger of being cremated at any at every turn. They went, Lounsburg was a work camp. From there, they went to a series of five or six sub-camps. They changed climate. They changed jobs, whereas in Auschwitz, they were given, it seemed like ridiculous, busy work of carrying stones from one place to another. I think they didn't know what to do them, with them at that particular moment. Here they were at Lonsburg. I think she was. She had a job in the in the kitchen. In Lonsburg, they saw their first snow, for example. In fact, they were so shocked when they walked up, woke up one morning, they were snowed in. They couldn't get the door open, and they thought that it was a trap. And this is the degree of fear, of course, that they lived in, that somehow they were going to be suffocated and closed into this building. But it had simply snowed in the night. It was quite remarkable. She also cleaned for a German officer there, didn't she? Yes. She was assigned to clean barracks, I think, even before the kitchen. And she was efficient at that. She'd grown up with a very gifted housekeeper of a mother. And um, it was, she was made to understand that if she developed a special relationship with this officer her quality of life would significantly improve if she wanted to enter into that kind of friendship with him. And she said she didn't. It's quite remarkable that it was a choice of hers. Other women had made the opposite choice and lived better. And I don't think she judged them. Certainly, we can't judge anyone in that context. But Stella chose not to. So she went back to cleaning other people's barracks. There are more camps to come for Stella, though, aren't there? Turkheim concentration camp, which is one of the sub-camps of Dachau. That's her next stop. So are the conditions there any better? Or is she just finding more of the same everywhere she goes? In Turkheim, food is even more scarce. We're coming you know, close to the end of the war, although they don't know this. Stella has developed skills for survival, and one of them is trading with the men in the camp who live in a different part of the camp and do different jobs. And one of the key, the the agora, let's call it, of the of the camp is the latrine. The men's and women's halves of the latrine are separated by a, a piece of wooden wall under which there's a, a, a gap large enough to trade. And so Stella and the young women were given the jobs of harvesting potatoes, and they would stuff them down their pants in order to have extra food for themselves to eat, but in order to eat these potatoes they had to cook them and the men had access to firewood and so they would trade under this wall in the latrine stella tells a story laughing but laughing in the way one laughs with black humor of uh, a time when she had put her potato or she was either she or her cousin sarah had put the potato under the trading gap and no wood was forthcoming on the other side 
rude. That's all I've got to say. <laughs> rude. I mean, it leaves me speechless. Yeah, rude is definitely a word for it. Um, it's a difference between eating and not eating. And I should say that, you know, they they did their polit- their secret potato harvesting when the woman in charge of them was, they had two supervising uh, barracks leaders. One was Erika and one was the one who's still now calls La Cativa, the evil one. When Erika was on, Erika loved these young Italian women. She loved to hear their music. This is a th- a something I wanted to say earlier was that Stella and the, the Rodeslis, as they call themselves, the young women from Rhodes, often sang. They sang out of nostalgia, out of homesickness. They st- they sang to buoy their spirits to pass the time. And Erika, this one barracks leader, loved their music and used to ask them to, ask them to sing for her, to dance for her. She called them Les Italiens in French. And Erika was a softie and saw these young women coming out of the fields waddling because they had so many potatoes stuffed down their pants. La Cativa, if she found you with a single potato, would whip you or punish you in some ways. And the most remarkable thing happened at this context in this camp. Um, Renee came back, or, or Stella, sorry, returned from potato picking one day, Renee was at a different job, her sister, and she had been told that she'd been called up to be transferred to another camp. And her understanding was it was one of the camps where people were executed. And she was, of course, distraught. Stella, and along with, uh, of course, with Madame Katz, because she needed the translation from French to German in this case, went to Erika, woke her up and explained what happened. And because she was the good captor, because she loved the music and the songs sung by these young women, les Italiens, she went and changed Renee's number for someone else on the list of the women to be deported the next day to the next camp. A most remarkable story. You know, Stella speaks very uh, often about suerte, which is Judeo Spanish for luck, and saying that luck played a big role in her survival. You know, and I spoke to a man who's a scholar of the Holocaust who said to me, all of the survivors say that. There's nothing new to say that luck was the the thing that saved them. But it was always luck and something else. Luck and grit. Luck and accidents of friendship like the one with Erica. Luck and a certain aggressiveness, which maybe Stella had. Or a certain strange defiance which her her cousin Sarah Notrika had she didn't care what if she was going to be she said if she was going to be caught she would still steal that piece of meat or that piece of cheese or that extra sweater I agree uh, I agree with the scholar that you spoke with because that's something I concentrated on during my uh, my master's looking at Polish prisoners, for example. And again, in all, if we use concentration camps as, a, as an umbrella term for, for all of the death camps and, and labor camps and everything else, when they say that they survived with luck, everybody says it, literally. It doesn't matter yeah. if you were Jewish, Polish, Soviet, a Roma or Sinti, any of any everybody says it and to a degree it, it's it's true however it's also down to decisions that people make sometimes so for example people who were released they had a better chance of survival because they were released or people who knew the camp knew the people knew who to avoid who to ask for help being able to escape all these factors add up but could also be just as simple because being checked on a selection 
and you looked right at the at the SS man that was selecting you and the woman behind you just had maybe had a stupid look on her face and that day he didn't like that look on her face so that's why she went left and you went right it's just it's mind-blowing totally and and Ostella talks about that she talks about girls who were stronger than she was being chosen one in particular who had a scar on her face chosen to be selected to be to be killed Stella didn't have a scar so she survived there was one of one of the selections from one camp to another when uh I think it was Sarah yes it was Sarah Notrico who was at this point her cousin working in the kitchen ran and grabbed a beet and sliced off the top of it and they rubbed beet juice into their cheeks to look healthier well that's not exactly luck right that's taking action combined with the fact that it succeeded and maybe that was the day where the light hit her cheek just right and the man doing the selecting was in whatever sort of mood so yeah i mean i just I, there's a psychological no aspect to it again isn't there in the how does the human brain process such cruelty and such chance and it's that saying about a, a soldier isn't it that you can only be really effective when you acknowledge that you're already dead and anything more than that is a bonus. And that's how your brain can start to process the idea that like a scar on your chin might be the difference between life and death. It it's nuts. Exactly. I think I think that there's the rational mind that's trying to find all the reasons at times. And then I think suerte luck becomes the catch-all for everything that you can't explain, which is a great deal, right? And it it's just it's a it's a thousand small decisions being made all day long, right? where yeah. you're going, who you're looking at, how healthy you look, what it's you're able like, to trade. To... It's like when Sorry. people say to you, why did you survive? Sorry. It's yeah. like when people say to you, why did you survive? And the only answer is, I just did. That really is the only answer. But of course, our brains work differently. We want to see, you know, we want to retrofit. I want to retrofit my impression of Stella today into this young woman who did do certain things, right? Who did make friends, who did connect to people, who was strong, who could forego a meal in order to trade for a spoon so that she could eat the next meal, right? Who could forego uh, another meal in collaboration, which is, I think, a revealing piece too. Like she was able to collaborate with her, her bedmates that they would all forego a piece of bread at one meal so they could buy a sweater for one of them. I mean, these are things that I think you can point to, but are they ul the ultimate explanation? No, they're not. Let's move, sorry, let's, let's let's move back to um to the story to Stella's story because she moves she moves to quite a few sub camps, which are all uh, sub camps of Dachau, and then she finally moves to Allah, and she's liberated by the Americans. Talk to us through what her liberation looked like and what did she do after liberation? Did the Americans arrive and she said, thank you, I'm free, goodbye? Or <laughs> yeah, not, not that simple. They So the Americans, I don't think even knew that this camp existed. They came driving along on their way to Dachau, as she tells it. And yeah, they found these. Estella often speaks about how she got a sense of how she must have looked in the looks on the eyes of other people. This happened to her when they stopped at a station on the way, on the trains, on the way to Auschwitz. And the station master's children looked at her and she knew how filthy she must be. When the American soldiers came and looked at them, she knew how thin and unhealthy she must have appeared. They came, they took over the camp, 
they asked Stella and the and um, her cousin and Renee to go to work in the kitchen and to and to start feeding. And they brought, you know, American foods that Stella had never seen before, like powdered milk and so on. They brought the Red Cross in and made sure that people didn't eat too much food, particularly too much fat, too quickly. And they were free to go where they wanted. They were free human beings. This is something that seems very hard for us to think about. It's like you go from one day to the next when the Americans, which who had been bombing nearby, when they start the, the day before the Americans uh, arrived, the officers, the German officers obviously knew what was coming. They dropped their arms and fled. They woke up the next morning and, and the word went through the camp that the, that the Germans had gone at that moment, even before the Americans came, they were in theory free to open the gate and go wherever they wanted. But what did that mean? They had no papers. They had no money. They had no clothes to speak of, no food, except the food that was there. The Americans came and Stella and her group, this group of five young women that she stuck with, though they were separated at one point, but where they had been reunited, decided to basically hitch a ride with an American soldier to Italy. She maintains that they were the first group of Italian women to return, this word is in very distinct quotation marks to Italy after being liberated from the camps return because of course though they were Italian citizens who've been educated in the Italian school system they had never been to Italy Stella had never left the island until she was deported in July of 1944 it's worth remembering and uh they were free human beings and the soldier said to them well where, where would you like to go and the only thing they could think of, but which was a really smart thing, was, well, take us to the nearest Jewish community. They went to Modena, and there were no Jews yet back, either from hiding or from having been deported themselves. They went on to Bologna, and there, yes, they were just reopening the synagogue. They ran into and were introduced to a family named Zuckerman. The daughter was setting up shop, supposed, herself recently returned to town to try to help the refugees they knew who were going to be coming. They were welcomed. They were fed. Uh, they met up with the Palestinian Brigade, which had been formed uh, very late in the war, and uh, of soldiers from Pal then Palestine, and uh, had been. They were fighting in northern Italy, and they gave that they helped them get organized. Took them to eventually help them to connect to their siblings who were in America. Gave them uniforms to wear because there were no clothes. And eventually, with also various other, let's say, bureaucratic organizations at this point supporting them, they made their way to Florence. And they went to Florence because Stella had formed a very strong friendship slash relationship with one of those professors I mentioned to you who taught her in the secret school when, after 1938, she was kicked out of the Italian schools. Luigi Noferini, who was a teacher in Florence. He had left the island and was not allowed to return because he was an avowed communist. And uh, they turned to him for help. And he helped set them up um, with funds that they received from the, the joint in a pensione uh, in Florence because they their goal was to go be with their family in America. But the American government would not initially issue them visas because as the, the the bureaucrat wrote in a letter that Stella still has and that I've seen, he said that, that, that there was a quota on uh, 
visas for Italian citizens, even those who had been in prisoner of war camps, which I found just a fascinating slip of the typewriter or in, or, abs, or perhaps willful ignorance or unwillful, plain old ignorance as to what these women had been through. They lived for more than a year in Florence, going between Florence and Stella, often Rome and Naples, where the consulate was to try to sort out their papers, because now they were citizens of a country born in a place that was no longer officially belonged to the country in which they were born and grew up, very complicated, but they had no papers. After a year, they received their, their passports, they received the visas, and they went to, by way of New York, they went to Los Angeles because their siblings were in California at that time. Among them, their older brother, Morris, who had left the island of Rhodes when he was 10 years old before both Renee and Stella had been born. So they met their brother, the firstborn of their family, for the first time in 1947 in Los Angeles. That's insane. I just, Isn't that crazy? It, the, the utter regard and affection you have for Stella just shines through on every page of this book with how you've treated her and her story. Um, and I do like that we're ending we're ending with the positive that she does get to New York. How did, how do they end up there? Um, because obviously well, this, this is, is wonderful. This is, yes. Stella's life, like many lives have moments of, you know, I don't know if you could call this suerte too, but they certainly have moments. She has many moments of strange, mysterious coincidences and uncanny events happening on the passage from Naples to New York. She met a pair of sisters last name also Levy, though they spelled it differently, who lived in New York City, who were Italian Jews who had gone back to Milan, where they lived before the war to check on what was left of their affairs. They had been able to go to America, luckily, during the war years. And they were returning now back to New York, where they where they lived, and they became friends. And over the course of the passage, and uh, they parted ways. Stella and Renee went to Los Angeles. They thought they were going to live in California, but Stella had a real allergy to, to L.A. She found it a cultural desert. She's very funny on the subject. I was born and grew up there. So that gives us a lot of mileage of joking back and forth. <laughs> and after a year, she was just really she and Renee realized they were just not happy there. It was just not European enough. It wasn't cultivated enough. It wasn't what she thought where she thought she belonged. And anyway, there was always this man, Noferini, who wanted her to marry him. And so she was on her, she went back to New York. She had tickets to go to Italy to marry him, but with some trepidation because, although we've not talked much about this, Stella was a very iconoclastic young woman. She was never going to be the woman sitting there embroidering her trousseau. She was very suspicious of her young marriage, of marriage period, although she did end up marrying briefly, but then divorcing and having a wonderful son. But she... This was not the model for her for her life. Never, and she didn't think, and nor did it turn out to be. But here she was heading back at any rate to live in Florence with this man, Noferini. She went to see Fanny Levy, whom she met on the crossing. Uh, she went to see her in New York and told her her plans. And the and Fanny said to her, "Well, that's not happening because Italy is a struggling country. People are still starving there. They're not back on their feet. It's no place to build a life." You're not ready to marry this man. New York is the center of the world. Everyone is here from everywhere. And you will have a really fantastic life if you give this city a chance. And just like that, Stella thought, she's right. Cashed in the ticket. 
moved into an apartment, found a job, and built a life for herself in this city where she's lived ever since. I love Stella. Um, <laughs> I like. I've never met her, and it's like it's infectious. Your your affection for her is in- infectious, and she's remarkable. And this book is remarkable. I will say that I've never met anyone who's thought so hard about what happened to her, who can tell stories so well, who connects so strongly with people. It's um, a question, you know, I can't be a psychologist here, but I, I observe that her connections to people, her friendships are the deepest thing in her life. Her connection to this web of interconnection among the community of Rhodes the descendants of the people of the community of Rhodes remains very strong to this day. You could, people will now come get in touch with her because of the book, or they've come to see her over the years. They'll ask a question. She will be able to remember all the family connections, whether to her own family or to this person's family. She'll know where they went to school, where they lived, what they looked like, what their favorite food was. Her brain is this constantly shifting kaleidoscope of Rhodes related colors facts, sounds, tastes, and smells, and little stories and jokes. And these are the things that captured my attention so powerfully eight years ago and held my attention for six years with those hundred plus Saturdays. And I'm just so grateful to have had this opportunity. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. You have told such an incredible story of such an incredible woman. And it's been mind-blowing i've used that a few times in this podcast i'm going to use it once more absolutely mind-blowing i love the book i really 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 hope our listeners go out and buy themselves a copy because i just cannot recommend this more than i can with words i'd I'd have to show with like a firework display or something (laughs) that is so kind of you i appreciate it thank you for having me on i think we should all remember that We're coming to the end of the time in which we'll be able to sit down with people who've lived not only lives of this length, but who've lived through the Holocaust, who can still look into our eyes and tell us what happened there. You know, I'm very haunted by the idea that in the generation after my daughter's, she's 17 years old, she's met Stella and heard some of Stella's stories, but her children will never have the experience of meeting someone who lived through this event. And it haunts me. Because Uh, to lose sight of it and lose track of it, it would be a human tragedy, as it was itself a human tragedy. Yeah. This day of all days, we must never forget what happened. Thank you so much, Michael, for coming on. We will put the book in the History Hack bookshop as well to make it easy for people to click and buy it. um, And the best of luck with it. Thank you so much. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.